I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this week's episode of The Trade Guys, Scott and Bill do a stock taking of trade policy, evaluating long-term trends and foundational shifts in our globalized world, looking at supply chains, industrial policy, and national security. Hello, Trade Guys. I am filling in for Andrew once again. And before we get to the trade content, I just have to set the record straight on something Andrew said recently. I have to affirm I know nothing about football. Well, we're glad to have you, Emily, and we'll keep football out of the episode if that helps you. Very considerate. Thanks, Scott. Scott, you had a creative idea, I think, for today's episode, which is to do a stock taking of where trade is headed, which trends we see emerging, and what's happening with investment policy writ large. So let's get right into it. And could you walk us through how open investment of the last 70 years may or may not be changing? Well, it looks to me like we're dealing with some changed circumstances on a lot of fronts in the global economy. And I think that's the, probably the place to start. Let me start with sort of the schoolhouse rock version of, of, of the world economy since the global financial crisis, if I could, which is roughly 2008, 2009. Uh, so in that time period, China got rich basically assembling consumer goods for developed economies, particularly the United States. And their success in that has led them to understand pretty clearly the middle income trap. They want to move on from the middle income trap and move up market into more technologically uh, sophisticated products. And by doing so, that creates some conflicts with us, with the United States, with Taiwan, with South Korea. That's chapter one. Chapter two is, if you look at Russia and the European Union, particularly Germany, which is the industrial center of Europe, ran large external current account surpluses during that whole period. Well, how'd they do that? Well, basically, Russia um, made its living selling cheap gas to Europe. Germany made its living taking that cheap gas and selling expensive goods. And that wound up with a lot of leverage for, uh, for Germany. So they, they really roughly each year produced about $2 trillion of value added on $200 billion of Russian gas. That's 101 leverage, which is dangerous in the financial world. It's dangerous in the manufacturing economy too. So that fell apart really. I mean, it, Nord Stream 2 was really all about more cheap gas from from uh, Russia to fuel Europe. And when the Ukraine conflict broke out, uh, this all degenerated. And so all of a sudden, European industrial competitiveness is under question. And Russia, which was doing reasonably well with hydrocarbon uh, exports, now has to do things that are more complicated, more expensive. So that fell apart. The third thing that fell apart was the United States. The United States, uh, during that period of time, as I see it, basically got rich on QE. We were the world's bankers, we, you know, and uh, the QE made for a very prosperous environment in U.S. equities. So from the low point in, I think, March of 2009, the Dow Jones Industrial Average went from under 9,000 uh, to 33,000. Scott, you better explain what QE means for newbies. Okay, uh, that would be quantitative easing. And this is, where, this is where the world responded to the global financial crisis, mostly the, the U.S. Federal Reserve Board responded to the global financial crisis by quantitative easing. And so we had zero interest rates for a very long period of time. 
Well, uh, listening to uh, Fed Chairman Powell yesterday, that party's over too. And based on yesterday's actions by the Fed, I think forward-looking, the U.S. payments on, on debt, so our interest payments on the national debt, are ne- now exceed our military expenditures. So the higher interest rates are going to be a problem on a world built with zero interest rates. So those are, uh, as I said, that's the, that's the cartoon version of what's going on. But all of this indicates, from a global economic standpoint, fundamentally changed circumstances versus the relatively, well, what, what they call the great moderation, which was relative peace and generally freer movement of goods, generally open investment. And so the most important thing now is to deal with the fact things are really different, and they're different for almost all the big players. Well, I don't disagree, but I look at it from, I think, a very different perspective, which is more uh, historical and kind of probably, Scott was at 30,000 meters, I'm probably going to be at 40,000 meters. But the enabling tools for what he's talking about, the enabling tools of, of globalization have been huge cost decreases uh, in transportation and communications. Uh, the creation of, uh, you mentioned new technologies, uh, iPhones, digitization, have all enabled things to move cheaper and faster. And by that, I don't mean just goods, but also services and data and uh, communications over the last 60, 70 years. Those tools have not gone away. Uh, They're still there. The costs are still low. They may fluctuate. They may not be as low today as they were three years ago, uh, but they're still low relative to where they were 20 or 30 years ago. And I don't, think that's, I don't think that's going to change. So to me, we're sort of in the, the same stage as what, you know, to misquote Lenin on his new economic policy, two steps forward, one step backward. We, we may be in the one step backward time, but the global marketplace, I think, continues to integrate. And I don't think that, you know, while the pace may change, I don't think the direction is going to change. What worries me, though, I, I'm a little worried about that, but what worries me is not the short-term um, issues. This is really kind of what Scott was talking about, because we'll work our way through those. Um, his point about our interest on the debt being higher than our defense budget, that's true, but that's been true before. It's not been true for 20 years, but it's been true in the past. And we've, you know, we've navigated through these various obstacles. Um, I'm worried about uh, about fragmentation. I'm worried about a variation of Cold War developing uh, where the world ends up being divided, not just U.S. and China, that's an oversimplification, but divided between basically rule of law countries and, and authoritarian states, non-rule of law countries. And that's going to make things more difficult. You can see this most obviously uh, in the digital space where you've got authoritarian states that pursue very different uh, digital policies where uh, privacy, or at least privacy from the state, is non-existent. Uh, Surveillance is universal, and data is treated as a state secret in in many cases and is highly controlled. That's really at odds with democracy's way of doing things. And uh, I think, you know, we're heading towards a significant clash of of systems in that area. Uh, you can see it right now in the shift of policy in the Biden administration to more forcefully try to contain China's uh, technology advances. Uh, that may or may not work, but it's a, it's a change of policy from simply trying to keep them behind 
which was a successful policy, I think, for 25 years, to a policy now of, of trying to cap their development in selected areas, AI being and high-performance computing being the first two, but those are not going to be the last. And you know, the, the interesting larger policy question is uh, who's going to follow suit? You know, who's going to follow the Chinese lead uh, and and the Chinese view of how the global economy ought to work? Uh, and who's going to follow the American lead uh, and the American view of how the global economy ought to work? And right now, that's an open question that I kind of worry about. I mean, we've got a lot of countries follow our lead on Russia, but that was a different situation. That was a unjustified, unwarranted invasion of another country's sovereign territory. Our relationship with China is, is, is different. So um, I'm not sure what's coming next, but I think... You know, I, I don't see a retreat of, of globalization in the long term because, the, as I said, the tools are still there uh, and the mindset is still there. People are used to being able to get things from elsewhere. People are used to, I mean, they might not be happy about it, but they're used to having their call centers run out of India. Uh, they're used to being able to provide services overseas. They're used to going places, sometimes distant places for the weekend. Uh, and, you know, as, as we recover from COVID, uh, those things are going to return. Yeah, well, actually, I think Bill's right when it comes to supply chains. Uh, as, as much as, as we talk about them a lot and they're messy and complicated and somewhat idiosyncratic, uh, I agree with Bill that we didn't forget how to build them. We didn't forget how to manage them. We didn't forget anything about logistics technology. And so while supply networks and economic interdependence in general and supply networks in specific work better when things are, are sort of steady flow, steady state, uh, and work less well in turbulent times, they still work and we'll put them back together. So I, I do agree with Bill on that. I think what companies hate more than anything, in my experience representing them, is uncertainty and not knowing what's going to happen next. And right now, we have a very high degree of uncertainty. You know, we have uncertainty in Asia. We don't know what China is going to do with respect to Taiwan. There's uncertainty about doing business in China. There's uncertainty about how they may react to the recent U.S. policies that I was just talking about. There's a boatload of uncertainty in, in Europe, thanks to the war in Ukraine. Uh, the war has also created a lot of uncertainty about global food supplies. People are just, you know, nervous because they don't know what's going to happen next. And when they don't know what's going to happen next, the first thing they do is they hold on to their wallets and they defer uh, investment decisions. They defer a lot of decisions and they just wait to see what's going to happen. Uh, and that impacts growth and in fact impacts job creation negatively. And it, it's particularly it's going to hurt, I think, developing countries that are desperately in need of more investment. To that point, uh, Emily, you, you set us this International Monetary Fund uh, report on economic fragmentation. And their key message, I think, is exactly what Bill just said, which is it's policy uncertainty that is the, the problem. That's the drag on action. And I, I, do think that, I do think that is something to watch carefully. And to the degree to which the U.S. administration drives, helps to drive versus reduce that uncertainty will determine our level of success in this space. But it's not just the U.S., it's not just the government. Well, speaking of government intervention, let's turn now to industrial policy, which seems like it's making a comeback after a decades-long hiatus. What policies embody the shift back towards industrial policy? Well, I think the tensions with China over technology. Clearly, technology sanctions 
uh, are a tool that helps buy time. Uh, but this is where I think the United States has decided we need to reshore this. And that's sort of the CHIPS, the CHIPS Act and other initiatives is where it shows up most, uh, most meaningfully, where there's, a, there's an important technological edge that we perceive, whether you call it foundational technologies or whatever, however you refer to it. But the notion that we can only do so much to slow down the progress of other, other economies that, that, that are either rivals or perhaps hostile to the United States, we need to do our own work. And so I think that's where it shows up first. Where it's always been, though, is in the defense industrial base, right, which has always been sort of a U.S. production and U.S. Uh, ma managed apparatus. And that will regain importance, mostly because the conflict in Ukraine is essentially industrial warfare. We're depleting military stocks very quickly. They, we find they can't be replaced quickly. So I'm watching both the high-tech space with the U.S.-China conflict, but also looking at what it's going to take our, our defense industrial base to essentially rearm following the depletion from this outbreak in the European or Eurasian continent of industrial warfare. So both of those, one is new, the other is not so new. Well, I think they're related, uh, and they're really related to the, because the security issues have become combined or conflated with with trade issues. And I end up talking about this frequently. I, I don't think industrial policy really went away. It moves from the front burner to the back burner from time to time. The United States actually has a very long history of engaging industrial in industrial policy, or to use a broader term, not industrial policy, but to using government resources to achieve national objectives, dating back, well, actually to Alexander Hamilton, but also to the, the Lincoln administration and uh, a variety of, of things, beginning with the Homestead Act and land-grant colleges, and a lot of things that were developed in the second half of the 19th century that made America the world's uh, premier agriculture producer and efficient agriculture producer. Uh, we did it with wireless communication after World War I, there at the behest of the Navy, so it was security-related. Uh, we did it with aerospace, there with because of concerns about uh, Sputnik and the Soviet Union, for those of you like me that are old enough to remember that. We did it uh, in more recently than that with GPS. Uh, we did it with the internet. We started out as a DARPA, defense-based uh, research project invention, which was then spun off, uh, spun off and commercialized. So we're good at this. It's controversial. It's generally opposed by conservatives in, in both parties on the grounds that it meddles with the market, which it does, that it picks winners and losers, uh, which it does. Um, and of course, if you do this a lot, there's a lot of winners and losers. And so you can have a lot of options to prove your case. You know, if you want to talk about why it works, you could talk about the internet, you could talk about GPS. Uh, if you want to talk about why it doesn't work, you can talk about Solyndra, which was the famous, you know, solar panel company that went bankrupt in the Obama administration and cost the federal government and the taxpayers a substantial amount of money. So, you know, there's plenty to choose from if you want to uh, make the argument. Uh, I think the reason it's surging right now is because it's tied to the security argument. So the argument that, uh, that the left, which has always been for industrial policy, has made to the right is this isn't about industrial policy. This is about competing with China. 
Yeah, and this is about our security. This is about enabling our high-tech sectors to do a better job of equipping our military so they can better defend our country uh, against the right believes, or a lot of them believe, is an existential threat coming from China. So when you conflate security and trade together, the debate changes and industrial policy wins. Uh, and I think uh, the result of it winning is you're probably going to see more of it. Of course, the problem is that, you know, when you pick winners and losers, there's going to be some losers. It's inevitable. Silicon Valley has figured this out. Uh, and, you know, I think the, the, the view out there is that failure is not a bad thing. You know, failure is a learning experience and failure is something that you grow from and then you move on to the next thing. And maybe you'll feel, fail three or four times, but ultimately you're going to succeed. That's a quintessentially American view. Uh, in a lot of countries and a lot of cultures, failure is a, is a humiliation. Uh, it's a sign of shame and something that you, you don't want to do, which leads people often not to take risks. Uh, I think one of America's strengths is that we are risk takers. But the consequence of being a risk taker is there are failures, and that opens the door for uh, critics to come in and say, well, you know, you failed. That means your policy that enabled you is also a failure. Um, and that's the mistake, because the policy is not necessarily a failure. We have to learn to accept the failures and learn from them uh, and grow beyond them so we don't make as many in the future. But if we go into the CHIPS Act assuming that all those plants are going to get built, they're all going to succeed, and we're going to recapture, you know, 90% of the world's chip market, uh, that's simply wrong. You know, that's not going to happen. They're not all going to succeed, and we're, our market share is going to grow, but it's not going to grow to that extent. And we have to be prepared for the, you know, the limits of the policy and be realistic about it. Yeah, that, uh, I agree with uh, Bill's comments to the extent that the government investment and the government direction is on the, as Peter Thiel would say, the one to N standpoint where you're scaling up an innovation. Zero to one is still really hard in the language of the tech inventors. Getting something actually novel uh, is, is quite unusual. And uh, individuals tend to be better at that than governments uh, just because of, of the nature of, of innovation itself. But Bill points out two areas where industrial policy is, I think, going to be broadly accepted and probably receive bipartisan support, which is in first the defense industrial base and the, and the rearming we need to do after, after engaging in industrial warfare. And then second, in reshoring tech, high technology, the highest, most sophisticated technology uh, at scale. Uh, which is the CHIPS Act, which was, of course, uh, received bipartisan support in the Congress. There are two other areas we talk about frequently on this program, which I think will be the areas of controversy. One is commodities, all right? That is that is that there is a lot of demand for commodities not now produced in the United States, despite our fairly large share of the Earth's crust here. We, we're a big continental country with 40-some percent of the land owned by, still owned by the federal government or a government, yet ex extractive industries are highly controversial. And uh, whether, it's, whether it's hydrocarbons or, or there are substitutes like lithium, restocking the commodities world will not be easy for us to juggle and, and will be a controversial uh, application of government policy. Finally, we're undergoing an energy transition, which will require rewiring the grid and that will also, I think, be an area of continued controversy. And so far, it does not look like we'll, we'll gain the kind of bipartisan support that either the defense industrial base 
or the high-tech chips have garnered. So how do U.S. policymakers overcome the claim that the United States is basically just copying the Chinese model, that they're doing the same thing? I'm not sure I'd overcome it. The right answer may be to embrace it. One of the more amusing things I went through when I served on the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission is we would, every few years, we'd have a hearing about this, and witnesses would come in and, and explain all the terrible things the Chinese were doing, the subsidies, the industrial policy they were pursuing, and how they were hurting us. And then inevitably, the question from one of the commissioners would come, would be, well, so what should you do about it? What should we do about it? And the answer was always, well, we should do what they're doing. You know, we can condemn with one hand, but embrace with the other. One of our colleagues at CSIS was telling me about a conversation he had had uh, with a Chinese uh, academic uh, recently who, who made the point, he says, now you're doing to us what we've been doing to you. And the answer is, yeah, we are. Uh, it took us a long time to figure it out. I'm not sure that's a bad thing. Scott? I think what China has done right with subsidies is on the scale side. I mean, look, I think that I think investment to take an idea that is proven and scale it up. So in the tech innovation speak, that's one to N. So it's, it's the multiples of what you've, what you've just invented is the part where I think government does the best job. Okay. I think, I think most governments are, for reasons of, of uh, human nature, really bad at zero to one. They'll probably fund the wrong things. What China did well is took existing sort of commercial, commercially known ideas and products and scaled them up. They don't always succeed, and they waste enormous amounts of money in the process. Yeah, you can do it better than, than, than they do, but that's, they're, they're at the part of the investment cycle that actually has the least failure rate. So there's still failure. So I think the answer, uh, Emily, is we don't deny it. We admit it and say the uh, times and circumstances call for it. Bill, if I could uh, share one of my favorite quotes of yours, the uh, Bill Ranch special, it's that there's no rule in trade against hypocrisy. Well, this is a good example. Yes, and fortunately that extends to politics as well. So that's <laughs> which we see every ten minutes on the internet. The next time you get an ad, uh, if you go home tonight and watch, I'm so tired of. Here in Washington, we get uh, ads for Yesley Vega and Abigail Spanberger, who are running against each other for a congressional district in Virginia that is actually south of the immediate suburbs, but reaches into the into the D.C. metro communications area. Uh, and you can't, you know, you can't be on television for more than 10 minutes without seeing four or five of those ads for both sides. Bill, you haven't lived till you lived in a swing state with an open seat Senate race. I'll tell you that. <laughs> You're getting Bud and Beasley, right? <laughs> yes, that's right. I, I, both of them eat babies, depending on which commercials you watch. So, <laughs> I've been a little distressed at uh, how vitriolic they are. I mean, some of them are are positive and constructive. The ones that are being paid by sort of third-party entities or you know parties rather than the candidate uh, herself, in, in this case, uh, are the nasty ones. I mean, calling the opponent, simply calling the opponent a liar. We used to be politer about this. We used to have commercials that talked about uh, specific votes that were cast that the other party thinks were a mistake. Uh, it's gotten much nastier. I wish we could get away from that, but digression, sorry. Yeah, that's uh, understood. But uh, here we are a couple of weeks before the midterm elections and uh, one week before. I'm sorry. I, I got to pay more attention to these things. 
after the election, we will probably have a have a podcast where we talk about what it all means. And uh, the answer may very well be not a whole lot for trade. Anyway, I had I mean, it means a lot for other reasons. It means a lot to the country. But I had a conversation the other day with uh, someone about that was an interview, actually, with a, uh, a TV interview on Japanese television where the questions were, how is trade being debated in the election? What does it mean for trade? And the answer is, aside from select locations, Ohio, Pennsylvania being two, um, people have other things on their minds. You know, we'll see. Maybe we can draw conclusions from it, but uh, it'll be fun to talk about it either next week. The dust may not have settled by the end of next week. It may take two weeks to form an opinion. If there's anything that the trade guys want to be, it's uh, careful and cautious and not not rash, right? That's I think that's uh, that's the watchword. But uh, I also would would just make a, a a request to our audience, which is if there are things you'd like us to talk about with respect to next week's election and the uh, likely alignments in twenty twenty three and going forward. We'd love to hear from you, and we would take uh, pleasure in receiving questions from our very informed listeners on what we should cover. All of our listeners are informed uh, because they listen to us. Uh, well, I have to say, uh, when I guest moderate, the most intimidating thing about it is knowing who listens. So um, it's always great to have feedback from a wide range of people. So. Let's close out today. We've already talked about supply chains and industrial policies. So let's conclude our kind of zoomed out look at trade policy by talking about something that Bill referenced earlier, which is the increased infusion of national security into economic policy. This has made a lot of news in recent weeks. It's kind of become omnipresent in the trade debate here in Washington. So what is the effect on trade policy of taking into account additional national security considerations? The main thing is, if you look at it from a supply chain standpoint, and Scott's the expert on that, so I'll be short and defer to him, it's it's telling companies that in constructing their supply chains, they have to build in an additional factor of security, uh, which is fundamentally a non-economic factor. So supply chains that were built on lowest price, best quality, most efficient delivery, now have to build their supply chains based on security and resiliency. Uh, that may, that's going to lead them to uh, cost increases. Simply changing costs money, but in, including a non-economic variable is going to move them away from best price, I hope not best quality, but best price, uh, because one of the things they're going to want to do uh, in a lot of cases is develop alternative, meaning non-Chinese sources of supply of parts and components. That may mean reshoring uh, or it may mean nearshoring. Uh, and that is probably going to mean uh, paying more. So people need to be prepared for that. I, I think the the argument I had with the administration is they they began this all this by saying, well, you can do all that and it won't cost anymore. And I said, that's ridiculous. Of course it will cost more. Why don't you just admit it? And now they have. Now they're saying, yeah, it will cost more, but for a good reason. You know, And they're right about that. I mean, that's a debatable a question you can debate. But if you want to have a secure supply chain, you may have to pay more to get it. Look, uh, trade policy is always has a national security component to it. Uh, in the early days of what we call the bipartisan consensus on trade in the United States, which was post-World War II, uh, trade was quite explicitly a peace project. And 
the idea of world peace and peaceful exchange being a part of that was a core point that, that American officials made to the public routinely and was accepted by the public. That's what made for the bipartisan consensus. So it's never absent from the thinking of trade. It does increase the complexity. Look, Bill's right, absolutely right about the, the, the way you have to examine your supply chains is different because trust starts to break down. As conflict arises between, between economies or, or regions or whatever it might be, trust is the first casualty. And these supply chains and global commerce relies to a great extent on trust between the parties. So that's what is, has to be the, the focus of supply chain executives and, and the decision makers. They've got to manage an environment of, of lower trust or declining trust which does increase the complexity and definitely increases the cost. Lots of pressure on those uh, components of uh, global business, uh, but we'll have to wait to see how it turns out. So speaking of trust and supply chains, uh, the Biden administration has repeatedly claimed that it's not trying to initiate a policy of decoupling with China. Do you buy it? No. Well, I think they're not forcing it. But uh, the reality is they say that they're not forcing companies to choose. I mean, the Chinese say the same thing. Uh, in reality, both governments are pursuing policies that are going to force companies to choose. Uh, the Chinese want companies, including foreign companies, to align themselves with the Chinese uh, political position on Taiwan, on, on the Uyghurs, on Hong Kong. We are less insistent on uh, political alignment. But we are concerned about security. The administration is interested in reshoring. So I think both countries are pursuing policies that will force companies to choose, even while they're denying it. The reasons countries enter into trade agreements and, and provide for commercial exchange is because it's beneficial. It's beneficial to the consumers. It focuses on the complementarity of the two economies. Uh, and when you promote uh, separation, you lose the benefits, the economic benefits of the complementarity that you had to start. Whether that's uh, soybeans exported to China or iPhones returning from assembly at scale and a very efficient production method. So all of it, uh, the consumer gets hit in the wallet. It's easy to lose sight of why we thought this was a good idea to begin with. We just have to, to see it. But I do agree with Bill. I think while the administration isn't saying it, both governments are engaging in practices which are promoting separation. That's a more tactful way to put it. Well said. Well, Scott and Bill, thank you for widening the aperture on the trade world. You've certainly provided a lot of food for thought. That concludes this week's episode of The Trade Guys. Thanks to everyone for tuning in, and we hope you'll join us next week. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.